Well, hello everyone. My name is Jeff Orr, and I've been a Christ follower for 36 years. And I am insane. I have an insane faith. I have a belief system that hinges on a single event in history, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say I have an insane faith, I'm not talking about hearing voices or a schizophrenic mental breakdown. I'm not talking about a believe-anything-I'm-told kind of faith either. My faith is insane because I have chosen to believe in the words of a God that I cannot quantify, I cannot touch or see, and I cannot necessarily prove scientifically that he exists. I choose to believe. Despite what I see in front of me, despite what my logic and experience tell me, I choose to believe that my God is bigger than my reality, and that in itself is insane. Honestly, I can understand why people look at some Christ followers and think we're out of our minds. I mean, we are. If we are truly following Christ's teachings, we become the exact opposite of what normal people think, well, is normal. We love people who hate us. We give up time for ourselves and our families and friends to serve other people, people we don't even know. We give our hard-earned money away. We forgive when people hurt us. We talk to the air and get purpose and direction from it. And we change our plans and goals based on impressions we get from this air. I don't know about you, but it seems a little crazy to me. Life with an insane faith is more of an adventure than anything else I can think of. It's a huge adrenaline rush, which should be particularly appealing to all you high-risk kind of people. What's even better is that because of this adventure, I've become closer to God himself. I'm understanding his character so much more. I'm experiencing life on a whole new level and seeing things more clearly. I'm in the process of becoming. Becoming what God has created me to be in a dynamic, living, and breathing relationship with him. Now, a little bit about my story recently. In the fall of 1997, I had taken a position at a church in Pittsford, New York, as the music and programming director of a church called Walnut Hill Community Church. And I was in charge of all the creative aspects of everything. I was in charge of the music and the drama and the video production that we would do, as well as the technical side of things and the sound and the lighting and the staging and all those things. We had about 45 volunteers that I was in charge of, and I had multiple teams and leaders, and I was in charge of all the training and development and things like that. I did this for 10 years, and seven years into this, through a number of circumstances, I became the only staff member left at this church. And so not only was I doing the music and programming and the creative aspects of the services that we did, but I was also now the interim senior pastor. So I was in charge of all the teaching and the vision casting and the leadership development and all the spiritual counseling and care for the church. And I did that for about three years. And our church started meeting and talking with another church about blending. And, and it was at this time that in our blending process with another church with a larger staff that God had given me a new vision for a new kind of ministry for me. wasn't real clear. It was a little vague, but he had given me a, a little bit to it. And he gave me a verse, a scripture verse that, that I really held on to, a stake in the ground that he gave to me that I would refer to time and time again. In January of 2007, the church gave me a, a sabbatical, and I was able to really seek after God and, and spend time with him to discover what it is that he was wanting me to do. And when I got back from that sabbatical, I knew in my heart what God was calling me to do, but I was scared to death to do it. 
And so God started etching away at that fear by talking to me through my dreams and through books and through other people and through his word. He just kept etching that away. And I remember in April 2007, I was, I was looking at this, this stake, this verse that he had given me, the stake in the ground. It was in Isaiah 54. It says, stretch your tent curtains wide, lengthen the cords, strengthen the stakes, do not hold back, don't be afraid. And in April 2007, I remember praying to God and saying, okay, God, are you, are you asking me to quit my job with an income and start a new ministry with no visible means of support and no gigs lined up, nothing is booked? I, I can't do that. I don't have that kind of faith. That's other people kind of faith, you know, the kind that you read about and, and say, wow, that's really an amazing faith. I don't have that kind of faith, God, so I can't do it. So you're going to have to do something because to me, this sounds insane. Well, I'm not alone in my insanity. The Bible is full of stories of insane faith and people who trusted what God had told them to do or to say or to physically move somewhere. What makes insane faith what it is? lies in the conflict between the reality we see before us and what God is telling us to do. Insane faith people don't deny or ignore the realities around them, and this is important. They understand them. They know the consequences if they completely dismiss their circumstances and hide away from the truth. Insane faith people choose to believe and trust in something that goes beyond their five senses, and that's the critical element, choice. At some point, in any situation in dealing with God, there comes a point of decision. A point where you have what you see in front of you and the logical decision to make, and in apparent contradiction, what God is telling you to do. It is in this moment that insane faith is born. Choose to believe and trust in the realities before you, or choose to believe and trust in God and what he's leading you to do. Now, I want to tell you a story, and this is a story of insane faith that we find in the Bible with a guy named Elijah. Now imagine living in a climate that is dry, arid, hot, dusty, and difficult to grow crops in. Now that's not too hard for me growing up in the desert city of Phoenix, Arizona. I can picture this quite well. Now I know the state claims that citrus and cotton are their major crops, but I swear it had to be dust. It was everywhere. It was in your front yard, it was in your backyard, in your friend's yards. Dust was ubiquitous. And between these fields of dust were patches of grass that only grew if you watered it nearly 24 hours a day. Dust was a way of life for us. Now the Middle East has much the same climate as my old stomping grounds. The visual I get when I read the story of Elijah and the widow found in 1 Kings 17 is one of heat, dryness, little to no vegetation, hard ground, and dust. In fact, this is the backdrop to the story of insane faith. The land is under a severe drought and famine, and Elijah, the prophet of God, is at the center of this drought. Now, at this time, the king of Israel is a man by the name of Ahab, and the Bible recounts his tales as more evil than all the kings before him. Now, that's something to put on your resume, isn't it? He worshipped a false god named Baal. He married a ruthless woman named Jezebel and considered it trivial to commit sin. The consequences of his actions were far-reaching, not only to himself, but the whole kingdom he reigned over. God sent Elijah to Ahab to tell him that there would be no dew in the morning or rain for a few years. Thus starts the drought. No rain means no crops. No crops means no food. 
Good people, bad people, followers of God, followers of other gods and idols, everyone got to reap the consequences of the king's decisions. And Elijah gets to deliver this wonderful news. Take a look at 1 Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him, and he went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I don't know about you, that's, that's kind of insane right there. I mean, I've never seen a bird bring me food. They're usually taking it or leaving other gifts upon my car or my food in a picnic or whatnot. But here it was. God told him to go, and Elijah went, and he was miraculously fed by birds. Well, sometime later, the Bible doesn't give a specific time frame here, the brook dries up because of the drought. Now, enough time would have had to have gone by for this to take place. Enough time for crops to fail due to lack of rain and people's resources to begin to run out. It's not like towns had a local grocery store to go to when the bread ran out. You had whatever you had. Whatever you gathered up and stored away, that's what you had. But even that was starting to run out. God tells Elijah to go to a town called Zarephath where a widow will provide him food. Now, a little background on Zarephath. Zarephath is about 90 miles north of Jerusalem in the Sidonian territory, which is the homeland of Jezebel, who, oddly enough, is trying to get rid of all the God worshippers in Israel. And so she's wiping them out and replacing it with Baal and Baal worshippers and priests. And the people in this area of Zarephath, in the town and in that area, the people there worship Baal. Now, Baal is considered to be the god of fertility and the lord of the rain clouds. Again, ironically, uh, the Lord of the rain clouds isn't able to produce rain. The people here are not God's chosen people. They're not Israelites. They're what the Bible calls Gentiles. And yet this is where God is sending Elijah. Now, in this town, there lived a widow and her son. Their resources were just about out. She had a handful of flour and a little olive oil in a jug as the remaining remnants of their food supply. This widow's situation was desperate. She knew it. Her son knew it, and their bodies were withering away due to malnutrition. Their energy started to wane and it became increasingly harder to do simple things like getting up. If you've ever watched the show Survivor, where contestants are stranded in a remote area for 40 days competing for a million-dollar grand prize, you witness firsthand what a diet of rice and water does to the human body. Toward the end of the 40-day period, the few remaining contestants spend more time resting and sleeping as their bodies are literally withering away. Their mental faculties are also impaired. The ability to think clearly becomes difficult in times of malnutrition. Malnutrition is a lack of sufficient nutrients to maintain healthy body functions. Our bodies need vitamins and trace minerals uh, to to maintain what we do, how we think, how we we, uh, react to Uh, elements in the environment. For example, a deficiency in vitamin A causes the body to not be able to resist disease very well. And there's all kinds of afflictions that, that come from malnutrition, such as stunted growth, reduced intelligence, and various cognitive abilities, 
reduced sociability, reduced leadership and assertiveness, reduced activity and energy, reduced muscle growth and strength, and poor health. These are just some of the things that come about with malnutrition. Now, as the widow of Zarephath and her son eat less and less, their bodies begin to succumb to the ravages of malnutrition. Day after day, without rain, food supplies begin to run out. She becomes increasingly belligerent and finds it difficult to stay hopeful. Worst yet, she watches helplessly as her only son starves to death right in front of her eyes. And she has neither the energy or capacity of mind to fight against the forces that will eventually take her and her son's life. One morning, the widow slowly gets up, her muscles aching as her body is feeding off of itself to keep her alive. Her mind is foggy. She looks at her meager food supply. She looks at her son who is sleeping, but not restfully. Her heart aches for him as she cannot do anything to help him. She would gladly die for him if it meant that he could survive the famine, but now it's too late. There's only enough flour and oil for one more meal. One more meal and then they die. This is her reality. There is no hope, no chance for rescue. The God she serves, Baal, has let her and the whole kingdom down. Her ability to survive by her own hand has failed her. Her religion has failed her. Her king has failed her. Her community has failed her. There is nothing left but to give up and to perish. She steps outside of her modest dwelling, squinting her eyes in the bright sunlight. The heat and dryness almost cause her to faint, but somehow she manages the strength to look for sticks to start a fire for her last meal. Her search takes her to the town gate where she finds her bounty and begins to gather up the bone-dry branches and twigs that once held life in them. Now enters Elijah. In verse 10, So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. So he called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? Now women in this culture had all the worth of the sticks the widow was gathering. Animals had better treatment than women did in this time. This being the case, when a man asked or commanded a woman to do something, she did it. No questions, no comments, no thought to themselves because there were severe consequences to not doing what you were told. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have given a rip about this guy and his request. I wouldn't have cared about the consequences. I mean, how much worse can life get? Gathering sticks up for my last meal. So who really cares about serving the request of this stranger? But that's me. Maybe she was going on autopilot. Maybe her mind was so foggy that she forgot about her situation for a moment. For whatever reason, this widow starts off to get this stranger a drink of water. In verse 11, as she was going to get it, he called. Oh, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Well, at least he's polite about it. This seems to wake the widow from her foggy stupor and brings her reality to the forefront of her mind. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. 
Here is where the insanity comes in. It is at this point that the widow has a choice. Does she believe in the reality that is in front of her and overwhelming her existence? Or does she believe the words of this man of God which contradict her reality? She knows her life. She knows what's in front of her in regard to her resources. She knows how life goes. She's even aware of the existence of God and recognizes Elijah as a man of God, but she has no relationship with either of them. Now, she's being asked to believe in the impossible. If it takes one cup of flour and a quarter cup of oil to make one loaf of bread, then that's what it takes. You can't make the same size loaf with anything less. This is reality. Yet this prophet is telling her to make a normal-sized loaf of bread for him first and then make a normal-sized loaf for her and her son after he's been fed. This reality would require twice as much resource than she has. It is impossible. She's asked to believe and trust in a God she doesn't know personally or have experience with to provide an unending supply of flour and oil from near empty jars. This is insane faith. Believing what God is asking you to do, which seemingly contradicts the reality that is in front of you. Now, it's easy to say, well, all things are possible with God, until you have to actually apply that level of faith to your life. Interestingly, though, faith is not something that we produce in ourselves. It comes from God. God is the author and perfecter of our faith. We can't try to have more faith. We can't will it into existence. Faith comes from God. This is why we can have faith that moves mountains. The impossible submitting to the supernatural possibilities, the laws of our reality giving way to the one who created those laws and who can override them. Verse 15. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. The widow chose to believe. She did what Elijah asked her to do. She didn't wait for a scientific explanation of how flour and oil can spontaneously reproduce itself. She didn't get any answers to the questions of why a good God would allow such a bad thing to happen to her and her son. In fact, she didn't even yet have any kind of relationship with this God. Yet, she chose to believe and then act on that belief. Now, I don't think she threw her intellect out the window and followed blindly. For a widow to survive with a son in this culture would require some ingenuity, creativity, and resourcefulness. She took all that she knew to be true, all of her experiences, and decided to go a different direction and choose to believe in the impossible. She chose the way of insane faith. God gave her the faith to believe one day at a time, and he made good on his promise. The flour and oil did not run out. The widow, her son, and Elijah had food every day. I have to believe that this widow still had to choose each day she got up to believe in the impossible. I mean, it's human nature to disbelieve, even when we witness and experience otherwise. I can imagine that her mind would scream at her each morning that she got up, What if the flour and oil run out today? What will happen next? You have to be nuts to believe this. Yet, with each passing day, With each new experience of faith, this widow's heart became more open to God. She's enjoying this new man in her life. Her son is growing in his affection toward Elijah, and Elijah's heart is becoming fond of this family too. The widow and her son have hope for the first time in a long time. She can see a life for themselves. She can see her long-lost dreams of watching her son grow up, get married, and have children of his own. 
She's feeling real joy again. Then, one day, she awakes early to the sound of her son coughing. It's not a normal-sounding cough, and it fills her heart with fear. She gets up and tends to him. She tells herself it's nothing to be concerned about. It will soon pass. But with each passing day, the cough gets worse. Her son begins to have trouble breathing. Now she's really worried. What is happening? Why is her son so sick? Is the god of this prophet who is staying with her angry with her? He certainly would have a right to be. She knows what her life has been like. She is keenly aware of her mistakes and bad decisions. Her mind goes over all the things she has done in her life that would have offended this god of Elijah. She feels the guilt of her sin wash over her. It's her fault that her son is sick. God is punishing her. Or maybe it's all because of the prophet that's come to live with him. She understands Elijah's connection with God. Can you relate to this? Have you ever had things fall apart and wondered to yourself if God is not somehow punishing you for past mistakes? That if you could just be a better husband or a better wife, a better father or a better mother, a better son or daughter, a better friend, if you could just stop drinking so much, or if you could be more patient, or if you could get your anger under control, if you could just stop lying or gossiping, then, then maybe, just maybe, God would accept you and love you and everything would be all right. Can you relate to that way of thinking? I know I can. Well, one afternoon, the widow runs to her son's side as she hears him coughing terribly and gasping for air. The worst has come. She holds his hand, and he looks into her eyes one last time and stops breathing. Her grief is overwhelming. Her dreams are shattered. She will never see her son grow up. She will never be able to hold him or comfort him. She will never again laugh at his silly games and playfulness. She will never hear his beautiful voice calling her name. It's any parent's worst nightmare. They have to bury their child. The grief, guilt, anger, and sorrow all come together as she unleashes her pain on Elijah in verse 18. What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She screams at him as she holds her dead son. What has this faith gotten her? A dead son, dead dreams, no future. It would have been better to die together, she thinks to herself. Elijah is faced with a lifeless form of this child that he has undoubtedly come to be fond of, and grief overcomes him. Maybe he feels a little helpless. Maybe he feels that he should have been able to do something to help them. Or maybe the words of this grieving mother cut him deeply. Elijah does the only thing he knows how to do, talk to God and intervene on their behalf. Give me your son, Elijah says to the widow. I would think that this mother who is pretty angry with God and his prophet that she has brought into her own home would have pushed Elijah away. But conscious or not of her actions, she hands her son over to him in another simple act of faith. What more can be done? Death is final. There is no turning back. There is only the burial, then loneliness, then darkness. A numbness comes over her as she sinks to the floor and watches Elijah carry her son to the upper room where the prophet had been staying. Elijah lays this lifeless boy on the bed in his room. Filled with compassion and grief, Elijah cries out to God in verse 20, Lord my God, 
Have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Elijah is obviously hurting emotionally. He really does care for this widow and her son. Once a stranger, he is now like family. Maybe Elijah assumed that God would spare the lives of the woman and the boy since she stepped out in faith and followed the instruction of his servant. As the days passed, the three watched as others in the city fell victim to the drought and famine. They quietly thanked God for his provision each day as the flour and oil never dried up. And their faith grew. Their hope started to return. Maybe things would be all right after all. And then this happened. The very thing that was happening to other people who didn't follow God happened to them. Death. It doesn't make sense. God was supposed to protect this family on behalf of Elijah. Wasn't that what God implied? Elijah might have thought to himself. A thousand thoughts race through his mind in just a few moments. Reality returns, and he sees the boy in front of him. Elijah stretches himself over the boy three times and cries out to God. Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Elijah has seen God do many things. He has experienced his provision in miraculous ways and has heard his voice time and time again. But reverse death? It was a stretch. It was insanity. It required insane faith. Elijah relied on his relationship with the God of life and creation to make a request from the depths of his soul on behalf of this widow. Elijah cries out, and God hears him. God not only hears him, but he responds to Elijah's cry for help. Now, God didn't have to give the boy's life back, but I think he wanted to show both Elijah and the widow something that would change them. For Elijah, this event would infuse the power of God in his heart, and he would need this foundation of understanding God's power in the days ahead on Mount Carmel. For the widow, God showed his tenderness and care to her in her time of greatest emotional need. He wanted her to know his love in ways that would forever alter her destiny. He showed his incredible love and grace to one that was not his follower, a societal nobody. She had no power. No influence, no apparent purpose in the grand scheme of things, yet he loved her just because, and he wanted her to know that truth. God returns the boy's life. Elijah carries him down to the still weeping woman. Her face still buried in her hands in grief. Elijah tenderly touches her shoulder. Look, he whispers, your son is alive. Can you imagine the scene? Can you see the look of amazement, joy, disbelief, and exuberance on her face? It's almost too good to be true, yet here he stands, her son, dead just a moment ago, now standing in front of her alive. She holds him tightly as her body heaves with sobs of joy. Then they all hug. Joy and hope have returned, but on a much deeper level. Suddenly the widow's heart changes. Elijah is no longer a foreigner with a God she doesn't know. He is family. His God is her God. And she recognizes this when she tells Elijah, verse 24, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. She knows the truth. She has felt the touch of the living God who wanted to show them his power and tenderness. In the middle of the insanity of following a God she didn't know, she found that this God wanted to know her. One of the truly amazing things I've learned in my faith journey is that God wants to know me, all of me, not just the good things, 
He wants to know me through and through. I find that amazing because I know the darkness that lies in my heart. I know the thoughts in my mind that are hidden from everyone else. I know the full extent of who I really am. And he still wants to know me. To understand that is to start to realize the beauty of the relationship that God wants to have with us. The question of, why am I here, is one that seems to be ingrained in every human heart. I know there are many authors that have put their explanation out there as to our purpose, and I'm not arguing the point. But the original reason, I think, for your and my existence, the why did God create me question, is answered with, because he wanted you to be. Think about it. God created you because he wanted to. He wanted to know you. I have a child, and my wife and I didn't go into having a child, and and I didn't have this child because I wanted her to sing my praises as a father, although that's a bonus, or because I want her to do great things in my name. I had her because I deeply wanted her. I wanted to love her just because. I wanted a relationship with one who was from me. We can have that same relationship with God because he wants a relationship with one that is from him, created in his likeness. He loves you just because. You don't have to do anything to experience that love. You don't have to do anything or achieve a state of higher consciousness to get it. God loves you because he wants to. Understanding that can not only change your perspective on your relationship with God, but it can alter your life completely. So in April 2007, I pray this prayer. God, are you calling me to do this? I can't do it. I don't have that kind of faith. You're going to have to do something. And he did. Because two months later, I I didn't do anything. But because God is the author and perfecter of my faith, two months later, my wife and I decided that, yes, it's time to do this. And so we stepped out and started a ministry called Innove Ministries, which has the vision of partnering with churches and artists and pastors to help them maximize their ministry, to help them to be all that God has called and created them to be. And I do that through a number of ways, through guest teaching at churches. I'll do guest worship leading. I conduct seminars and workshops for artists, for pastors, for leaders. I do consulting work with churches to help them maximize their ministry potential. I have a concert ministry as an artist. I go out and I uh, perform. I've got three CDs. And so I share what God's been doing in my heart and my life through music and through video. And so we stepped out in this. And the church, my home church, provided me with eight months full pay salary for a severance with full health benefits. Wow. I mean, when you resign, you usually don't get anything. Typically, it's thanks, goodbye. Yet the church saw fit to honor my wife and I, and they provided that income. Wow. And God has been providing miraculously right along the way. And I'm still in that spot of insane faith because... I'm still each day having to get up and choose to believe, believe that God is going to provide, that he's going to open yet another door of ministry and opportunity to to help and encourage and, and provide for my family. So what is the story of your faith? Where is God asking you to trust him and to step out against what your reality is telling you? Maybe he's asking you to change careers, to spend more time with your family. Maybe he's asking you to go on a missions trip. Maybe he's asking you to build relationships with people you think you have no business having a relationship with. 
Maybe he's asking you to trust him with your finances in ways that seem utterly impossible. Maybe he's asking you to step out and serve him in new ways. Maybe he's asking you to do something that only you can do and that he has made you to be, but it seems overwhelmingly difficult. It requires thought. It requires trust. It requires a choice on your part. It requires insane faith. Now, I want to give you a few things to think about before you leap into the unknown. The first is, is God in it? Has he put a stake in the ground? Has he given you a scripture that will serve as that stake? Because you are going to need it. There's going to be a lot of days where you doubt, where you struggle, where you wonder, is this the right decision? And you have to keep going back to that scripture that God has given you, that stake in the ground, to remind yourself, yes, this is what God has called me to do, and I believe it, and I choose it. And what is God calling you to do? Think it through. What is it that he's calling you to do? You may not have specifics. You may just have a a vague idea or a general direction. God gave Abraham a general direction. He said, get up, move away from where you're at now to a land that I will show you. Uh, Could you be a little more specific? He wasn't. He just gave him a general direction. And maybe God has given you a general direction. So ask God what you can learn in this season of your life. Is there any mentoring that you can receive? Is there somebody that can pour into your life to help you develop that and, and to pursue what God is calling you to do? It's not necessarily going to happen overnight. Sometimes it takes a few years as God processes through things with you. Is what you sense God calling you to do line up with Scripture? I've heard a few times people that would say, oh, I've, God is calling me into this new ministry and you know, my wife, we've just not seen eye to eye on these kinds of things. And this girl that I know, she really gets me and she could partner with me in this ministry. And I, I believe God is calling me to divorce my wife and marry her. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't call you into things that contradict his word. So here's, here's today's thought of the day. God will never ask you or call you to do anything that contradicts his word. Never ever, because God won't contradict himself. Talk to mature Christians who know and care for you. Pray together about what God is calling you to do. Ask them to pray with you and then take time to listen and and ask, what is God telling you? What is he putting on your heart? And really listen. After all of this, you then have to make a choice. It's not one that God will make for you. You have to do it. You have to choose to believe in what God is calling you to do and to step into it. Each day, you have to choose to believe. I wrote a song a while ago that's on my CD, Hanging by a Thread, under a different set of circumstances, but it still applies to my life today. The song is called One More Time. It speaks to my heart because I need to remind myself that I have to make that choice each and every day. I have to choose to believe. In the chorus, it says, One more step I take toward you. One more hope I place in truth. One more time I say, I believe in what I can't see. As you listen to this song, take some time to reflect on what God is doing in your life. If the song resonates with you, you can make it your own prayer. Choose to believe. Ask God to help you to choose to believe. To believe that all things are possible through Christ. All things are possible to him who has faith. God is the author and perfecter 
of our faith. Ask God to help you to choose the way of insane faith. Hey. Okay.